Hello and welcome to Culture Sex Relationships with me, Justin Hancock. I'm absolutely thrilled to be joined by Jacob Bloomfield. Hello, Jacob. Hi, thanks for having me. Jacob, you've written this absolutely fantastic book uh, called Drag British History, and it focuses on drag from 1870 to 1970, thereabouts. That's right, isn't it, Jacob? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Let's get the plugs in uh, up front. So it's out now, is it? But by the time listeners will hear this, it will be published? Yes. And it's published by the University of California Press. Yes. Uh, and people can buy it where they can buy books, presumably. It's an academic book, but it's um, broadly available, I think, and not too expensive, I don't think. Yes, hopefully it's uh, accessible for people. And um, if it's outside of your uh, price range uh, in terms of buying a personal copy, then I'm happy for you to you know, ask your local library or your university library if they can stock it. That would be lovely. Um, yeah. I'm very keen to have it in libraries as well. So, yeah. Um, yeah, and I'm, I'm very keen for people to have it in their hands and read it because yeah. it is such a good book. Uh, it's you. so um, it's the magical mix of both scholarly and entertaining. It's a real page turner. Um, it surprised me how much I was kind of learning and engaging with it. Um, as someone, I've always been a little bit kind of uh, um, just ambivalent about drag, I guess. But it it made me realize that. It was only particular forms of drag that I was responding to, and that actually, uh, the way that you describe the history of drag is that it's actually a lot of it was actually qu- quite mainstream and quite accepted, but also just kind of like part of our kind of daily lives. And also, it made me reflect on how drag uh, is currently still part of our daily lives. With people thinking of shows like Mrs. Brown's Boys, and of course, uh, Lily Savage, and um, as well as all the the uh, TV shows like RuPaul's Drag Race, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So it's um, a really timely book as well, given everything that's happening with uh, right wing conservative voices from the states, which has been imported um, over here. And obviously, you've been working on this book for a long time, so there is like a bit of a. And you talk about this in your introduction that there is a bit of a kind of a convergence of things going on. But let's just address this. Just uh, off the bat, yeah. Well, um, you didn't write this book in response to the conservative voices about being anti-drag uh, at the moment, um, drag queen story hour, etc. But I mean, how are you feeling about that in terms of your book coming out now in this moment? What's um, do you have any thoughts about that? Uh, yeah, it's sort of interesting. I uh, I've written an article in the Telegraph recently um, about um, the current uh, kind of conservative. Uh, Ferrari over drag mm-hmm. um and the current kind of culture war over drag so mm-hmm. uh you're welcome to check that out you, yeah, yeah, you yeah. the listeners and you justin um put that, i'll put that in the show notes sure sure i'll send you the link later right, um please. but um basically it's sort of interesting when i started this book began life as a phd thesis and when i started um you know there was all this talk, which still exists today, about how drag is newly popular and newly having a cultural moment. Um, so when I started, I sort of, I didn't want to be a well-actually guy. Yeah. I think of the book as yeah. more kind of contextualizing ideas we have about modern drag, such as drag and working class culture, drag and sexuality, 
uh, things of that nature. So I'm trying to kind of contextualize our present day ideas about drag rather than tell people they're wrong or something. Um, so, um, but, uh, you know, when I started doing the PhD thesis, there was this idea drag is newly popular. And I kind of wanted to say, well, there have been many times in the past where drag was hugely popular and seen by people who had all sorts of different cultural tastes, all different classes, people from uh, up and down um, Britain. Uh, so uh, I thought I was sort of talking to the drag supporters initially, but now I feel like I'm sort of uh, talking to the anti-drag people mm. and saying the same thing, you know, drag is an important mm. part of British culture and uh, has been a central part of um, British cultural heritage and uh, theater history, etc. Um, so it's sort of weird. I feel like I'm making the same argument, but I've moved from making that argument to the drag supporters to making that argument to the uh, drag, the people who don't like drag. Unfortunately, I think uh, people who don't like drag are unlikely to pick up my book, but um, mm. I'm happy if you hate drag pick up the book if you love drag pick up the book or like you said if you're ambivalent about drag yeah. pick up the book and uh hopefully you'll find something to like about the book um yeah wherever you fit on the spectrum in terms of uh liking supporting or not supporting drag yeah i think um i honestly think it's uh it, it, there is something in in here for everyone because it's just so well written and it is just kind of telling these in very, very interesting stories. And you're right, contextualizing them in terms of um, politics and class and solidarity, but also conservative voices and how and how the different intersections of how uh, um, drag and ideas of drag and and uh, what will come on to this, what what uh, what uh, people thought uh, what people thought were the potential problems of drag were produced in very kind of interesting, different kind of um, ways. Um, anyway, let's get into it. So, um, so let's talk about the um, the history of the dame uh, and one of my favourite characters of the book, uh, Arthur Lucan, and his character, Old Mother Riley. And this was just tell us about this. This was a, a, a very very successful actor playing a very, very popular character, which I was kind of thinking, have I heard this name before? I feel like I'm sure I'd heard this, this uh, the name Old Mother Riley before. And maybe it's something that my parents had kind of talked about at some point and maybe older relatives have kind of talked about it. But um, so tell us about Arthur Lucan and also um, and uh, and the kind of uh, the role he was playing in, in playing uh, the dame. Yeah, so uh, Arthur Lucan uh, was famous for his dame character, Old Mother Riley. Um, his sort of the height of his popularity was around the 1930s uh, to the mid 1950s. Mm -hmm. um, he uh, performed in the Royal Variety show in, I believe, 1934. Uh, I could be wrong, I don't have the book in front of me. Um, he, uh, had a whole media empire basically based mm. on this Old Mother Riley character, which included stage shows, a radio show. We don't often associate, we, we think of drag as a visual medium, mm. but, um, uh, he had a radio show, gramophone records. Um, I think I mentioned films, but there, he had a 
uh, the old Mother Riley film series includes uh, over 10 films, I believe. Um, and uh, um, a comic strip uh, based <laughs> on the character. Um, and also was, uh, you know, did pantomime Damery, but also kind of took the Dame out of pantomime as mm. well. Um, and uh, Arthur Lucan's wife, Kitty, uh, played old Mother Riley's daughter mm. in the act. And that was actually kind of the least weird part of their relationship. They had a very antagonistic relationship. Uh, he kind of kept on trying to go solo and she would sometimes by force uh, prevent him from doing that. Um, and he uh, he had sort of a tragic end to his career. Uh, he was still quite popular um, by the end of his career in the mid-1950s, but he had a massive tax debt. In fact, I found an article that said, uh, from an article from the 70s saying that his ghost might still haunt the tax office um, because uh, uh, as a revenge, you know, for <laughs> for uh, um, HM revenue going after him. And um, also he quite fittingly, because he was so indelibly associated with this character, Old Mother Riley, he died um, waiting in the wings to go on stage um, mm. uh, as Old Mother Riley. So he died in the clothes and makeup of Old Mother Riley mm. uh, in the wings of a theater in Hull. Mm. Um, so it's quite, um, so kind of a sad but fitting and um and i opened the chapter with uh his death um but um yeah as i said uh hugely popular and also um it's one thing that i find quite interesting about arthur lucan um well first of all he uh so we think about the dame as this sort of slapstick superficial mm. clownish sort of character and of course, the old Mother Riley uh, character involved lots of, you know, slapstick comedy and pratfalls and things like that. Um, but there was also a political message there, for example. So old Mother Riley's audience were mainly uh, working class hmm. people in um, industrial cities and uh, suburbs. Um, uh, old Mother Riley actually... Uh, the films didn't uh weren't released in the west end for a long time uh because uh old mother riley was so associated with working class audiences um uh as i said in industrial cities and suburbs um and um uh and the old mother riley really spoke to these audience members not only by giving them entertainment value but also speaking to working class concerns for example in the film old mother riley mp uh old mother riley runs to be an mp uh against not only her former boss but this former boss is also a landlord so mm -hmm. doubly a class enemy and uh she wins on a platform of a uh, universal employment for example so there are some kind of overt uh, left-wing messages in uh, Old Mother Riley uh, films yeah. and uh, you know in the scripts it says that the audience is meant to boo the landlord when they go on stage etc so um, there were even though Old Mother Riley was this slapstick figure and the dame is a slapstick figure uh, there were there was there was some you know uh, complexity and political messages and um, also, old, uh, lastly, Arthur Lucan really 
um, took a lot of time to uh, imbue the character with a sense of believability. Uh, a lot of people talked about old Mother Riley as though she was a real old woman. Mm. Um, and uh, he used sort of Stanislavski-esque uh, character building um, mm. to really uh, make this character sort of believable within the carnivalesque world of old Mother Riley, of course. Yeah. I, it's, it, I really love reading about um, Arthur Lucan. I, he was playing to just to, I mean, he had, as you say, films, radio, um, records, but he was playing to packed out theatres in working class communities. And this is when, obviously, pre-TV um, and, and pre-modern cinema, I guess, as well. But he was playing to like packed out like music hall type theatres pretty much every night, wasn't he? Like across the UK. And the the London reviewers and West End theatre reviewers were incredibly snobbish and saying this was, um, uh, you know, not I suppose not art, and you know that it's for that it's for like the pause kind of thing, that it's not edifying. But working class folk were so there was the we're going to talk later, I think, about the role of censorship and 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 the people who were kind of problematizing drag. But the interesting thing I really took from this was just how working class fans of uh, old Mother Riley were very, very accepting of this. Was is that because of something about working classness and and not seeing anything to do with gender variance as being necessarily a problem, or is it to do with the fact that the messages that uh, he was talking about were really interesting, or or was there something else going on on there? What what? What do you think is kind of happening where working class people could accept something, or am I just kind of imposing today's standards of uh, of how we see gender onto onto something that was happening um, ninety eighty years ago? Um, well, thanks for the question. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, as you mentioned, Arthur Lucan slash Old Mother Riley was extremely popular, and um, that's sort of an argument I made I make throughout the book is, you know, not only were drag performers popular and not only can you, if I can be so bold, kind of tell the story of British popular culture in the 19th and 20th centuries through a story of drag. Um, but a lot of these performers are some of the most popular cultural figures of their day. Uh, and Arthur Lucan was one of those people, like one of the highest grossing box office stars of, of the forties. Um, mm. Uh, along with Kitty McShane. And um, so uh, I think, um, so you're kind of broaching the question of were the working classes more accepting of gender variance than say the middle classes mm. uh, or uh, ruling classes or upper classes? Um, and that's a good question. Um, and I don't know if I can say <laughs> one way or the other. Um, there's certainly um, ideas, you know, I found in my research, um, and we can talk about this a little bit later if you'd like, uh, mm. people at the Lord Chamberlain's office, Britain's mm. state uh, theater censor, they uh, were. They would often have discussions about homosexuality within the Lord Chamberlain's office, mm. and uh, they would talk about, you know, whether uh, homosexuality, for example, was a 
working class affectation or an upper class or middle class affectation. So um, I'm not, I don't know necessarily if um, working class people uh, were more accepting of gender variants. There is an idea in queer history that um, what we would call gay culture today or queer culture was kind of built by the working classes because mm. they uh you know if you were wealthier uh you could conduct your life in private um right. you know for much of the t- time so. uh whereas um you maybe didn't have that option if you were working class particularly let's say you moved to a city for work and you were staying in you know a lodging house or somewhere cramped um so um or you were living with family members or something so Mm -hmm. uh there is an argument that's been made in queer history that uh working class people sort of by necessity built queer culture um Mm -hmm. because uh they couldn't conduct a lot of their business in privacy to the extent that uh more wealthy people could but Mm -hmm. um But in terms of uh, Old Mother Riley, I think, you know, uh, as I said, um, the character spoke to working class concerns. There's this sort of stereotype of, you know, and I think this this stereotype existed back in Old Mother Riley's heyday in the 1930s through the 50s. But also now that, you know, working class people just want pure escapism. They just want, you know, uh, kind of silly slapstick and you know very uh bottom of the barrel humor and that was not true i mean um uh a lot of uh old mother riley's humor was um uh you know as i said there was that slapstick element but it was quite nuanced as well um uh you can see kind of literary and artistic allusions um quite highbrow cultural illusions uh, in old mother riley's um stage screen and radio and gramophone appearances and mm-hmm. um also as i said uh, she spoke to political and social concerns so there was a lot going on there that was more than just you know mere escapism and yeah. um uh, i just want to quickly uh you reminded me of an anecdote in the 1970s there was a surprisingly heated conversation around giving a blue plaque uh, or putting a blue plaque outside of um, Arthur Lucan's former home in Wembley. And um, uh, conservative counselors were against this. They called Arthur Lucan a second-rate female impersonator, etc. But uh, the labor counselors really fought uh, to have this blue plaque uh, as i said it was a surprisingly heated uh, mm. conversation and so um if you go to wembley you can find the blue plaque uh outside of um arthur lucan's former home i believe it's 1140 lane don't bother the people in the <laughs> yeah. um, but um uh but uh yeah um mm. you can still find it there if you want to make the pilgrimage and honor mm. this uh but yeah the labor counselors said um this i think it was the london county council at the time um mm. said you know uh this is an important figure in working class uh, folklore, et cetera. And um, eventually, yeah, Lucan got his blue plaques. So that's great. Yeah. 
I absolutely love learning about Arthur Lucan. We're now um we're now an Arthur Lucan fan podcast, it's official. <laughs> uh, That's right. <laughs> But uh, I suppose with um, I suppose with chapter two, um, like, this was a real surprise for me, um, and it kind of reminded me actually of the. So, dear listener, if you are a fan of Blackadder, uh, there's an episode in the final series where there is a where the troops are put on a review show, and that and George plays a female impersonator, plays like a very attractive um, woman character who then. Lord Melchid falls in love with, et cetera, et cetera. And that was the thing that that was kind of my point of imagining to kind of help me to to understand what was going on in Chapter 2, with, uh, which is entitled uh, Splinters Cross-Dressing Ex-Servicemen on the Interwar Stage. And it's absolutely fascinating. And it did begin with these uh, kind of review shows happening during the First World War. But then they carried on in the interwar period and during the Second World War and post-Second World War, for, so for a long period of time. And they were seen as quite a bit more risque and possibility and possibility of that being um, something uh, troubling ar- around these uh, around these shows. But also, again, amazingly popular shows, weren't they, Jacob? Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. Uh, yeah, so uh, the first chapter, or sorry, the second chapter mostly deals with... Um, a troop called La Rouge et Noir. Uh, they grew out of the, the first army, and that was the, those were the colors of the first army, mm. uh, red and black. Um, uh, I don't speak French, so I'm just, mm-hmm. I'm not trying, I just want to, full disclosure, I'm not trying to pretend I speak French here. Um, <laughs> but anyway, so uh, La Rouge et Noir, um, they uh, performed for their fellow servicemen during the First World War, doing these drag shows, uh, and then, uh, and, you know, people are, as you said, there's Blackadder, people are kind of generally aware of this history of servicemen doing drag shows for their fellow servicemen in the First World War and Second World War. Um, and um, uh, people were aware of it at the time as well, uh, hmm. that this phenomenon was happening. But what's interesting about La Rouge et Noir is they took these shows and performed for the general public Mm. throughout the interwar period and again they had their own kind of franchise um for instance they starred they weren't just bit players or secondary characters they were the stars of one of the very first british made talkie films um so um uh, so they were, and you can see that film it's called splinters it's on uh, iplayer actually oh okay Um, yeah, so uh, if you want to take a look at that. Um, and uh, I think, you know, if your audience watches the film, they would be uh, kind of perhaps surprised at how similar uh, the drag back then uh, is to drag now. Of course, uh, you know, ideas of feminine glamour have mm-hmm. changed, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, kind of some of the basic tropes are very similar. And... Um, you know, these uh, performers tried to be earnestly beautiful and glamorous. And um, uh, one interesting aspect of the performances is, you know, of course, they were praised by critics for their wartime service and people people had heard about the wartime concert parties. And so this was seen as a way of kind of of, uh, connecting with, uh, you know, wartime experiences of Mm. the troops 
Um, so it was seen as sort of an educational exercise, but mm -hmm. most of the reviews I read um, highlighted just how sexy they thought the performers yeah. were. And they really go into quite uh, excruciating detail on, you know, the white powdered arms, the manicured fingernails, etc. So um, the big draw was just being taken in by the beauty of the performers. And, you know, even though the shows were mostly comedic in nature, um, they earnestly tried to project beauty. And that was true also um, of the post Second World War ex-servicemen's drag hmm. reviews, um, which included shows with names like Soldiers and Skirts, um, uh, We Were in the Forces, uh, Forces Showboat, etc., and um uh you know i these these shows were again meant to be humorous mostly they were light entertainment but if you look at the um advertisements for the shows you know the uh, drag performers look like you know pinups from that period um yeah. so uh you know they were so a big draw of the show was just the uh, the technical skill involved and see and being taken in by the feminine beauty and being quote unquote fooled. Um, and if you were a, what we would call today a straight male audience member and you found these guys hot, it wasn't really a crisis of sexuality. Right. It was part of the fun. Um, yeah. until they took their wigs off at the end to, you know, yeah. emphasize the deception angle. So, yeah, audience members were getting really horny, weren't they? Yeah, they were. Yeah, well, yeah, and I and I do talk about you know, I do mention letters. Um, not necessarily. There was is one. So, for instance, uh, in um the uh in there, so there are three Splinters movies overall. Um, as I said, like a media franchise, and um. In the Splinters films, there are these like backstage dressing room scenes, and uh, there's one letter which is kind of reminiscing about the Splinters films, and um, uh, it talks about how you can see the the uh, the performers in every state of undress, which mm -hmm. isn't true, but clearly this person in their mind was, you know, uh, yeah. romanticizing it and sexualizing these scenes more so uh i do provide evidence in the book of you know people getting quite horny over drag yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. and um because there's this you know i think some people might think uh if if an audience member or audience members associated drag with sexuality they would think that that's bad but actually, there were lots of people who saw drag shows associated it with sexuality, people of all sexualities, yeah. seeing drag shows, associating it with sexuality and thinking that's a good thing, um, yeah. either because they were legitimately turned on or they thought, you know, it was a kind of fun, novel, sexually charged experience. Mm. Um, so, yes, there are. So I bring up evidence of people finding drag sexy. Yeah. It was interesting how where some of the critics of um of these shows were critical about masculinity and uh soldiering and you know mm -hmm. uh, brave troops coming back from the war and taking part in this but they were very much, you you make the you uh you say in the book that they were very much the 
overwhelming minority of views like some people would get angry enough to write to lord chamberlain or or, or whoever um say you know how dare they yeah you know similar but also they would pay to go see the show <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> and get very angry. So perhaps they're extracting their own kind of um, uh, jouissance there, I suppose. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was it was it. What came across to me and uh, is that it was almost as if it didn't matter that um, whether these were female impersonators or not. It, it, it almost struck me that yeah, as you say, that they were. It was the beauty that that they were kind of taken with, and the kind of the. Um, that excitement and the, I suppose in I suppose at that time as well uh, during the wars and post-war, you know, just having this kind of um, a show which is about uh, beauty and it is that it has its own like libidinal charge must also have been very very exciting to well clearly there's some excitement there to theatre goers whether or not and that and that they didn't care about how that was being pr- produced and who was doing it I suppose is that. Was there, is there was do you think there was that kind of ambivalence there from theatre goers around uh, gender or sorry I'm speaking too much now but yeah. what what do you think about that point? <laughs> yeah. oh, and first of all, when we say uh, female impersonators, we should just uh, say to your yeah. listeners, we're not just trying to be un PC or something. That's just the historical term yeah. uh, for you know dr- what people we'd call drag performers today, yeah. and both performers identified as female impersonators and observers called them female impersonators. Um, uh, so that's just the historical term. But anyway, um, uh, yeah, so. There are lots of ways. To, so one of the big arguments of my book is, uh, to put it uh, kind of uh, concisely, drag just didn't mean one thing, yeah. right? Uh, it could mean lots of things and it could mean nothing. So the in particular, the idea that drag was connected to homosexuality or, you know, kind of immoral sexual appetites or sexual immorality things like that um the that idea wasn't ubiquitous some people were connecting drag to homosexuality and i talk about how in the book this idea is in the air from uh you know at least to the early 18th century Hmm. that um there's something about men who wear women's clothes and that and this indicates you know some sort of sexual immorality Mm -hmm. or you know men who have sex with men um so it so because uh you know i think actually if you think about it it's quite a leap to make from you know you see a man wearing a dress on stage for example and suddenly you infer all sorts of things about that person's offstage life, Mm -hmm. uh, including who they sleep with. Um, But yes, nonetheless, some people were making that um, connection, but a lot of people weren't. And I think, you know, we often think we're the uh, sophisticated ones because we really know what, you know, a person in drag means. But uh, I think it's actually quite weird in a way that we infer all of these things about someone's private life just by virtue of you know seeing someone in drag and so um you know as i said from the 18th century at least there was a sense that 
a man and uh, a man, a cross-dressed man inferred something about their character. Uh, and then you have kind of in the, from the second half of the 19th century, medical discourse, which is mm -hmm. sort of pathologizing. Um, Those early sexologists, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of pathologizing cross-dressing and uh, gender variance um, and, uh, for the first time. Um, so, uh, you know, so you have those medical discourses, for instance, saying it isn't just a, if you see a man wearing a dress, it isn't just that this, you know, you can right. infer things about their persona um, yeah. based on that, especially if they're doing it habitually. Yeah. Um, but not everyone thought that. And maybe some people might think that if they saw a certain kind of drag show, but not think about that if they saw another kind of drag show. Again, some people liked that. They liked the fact that they, they, they thought drag was interesting because they associated it with sexuality. But there were lots of people who simply saw a drag show and after it ended, you know, they didn't think about it. <laughs> they just thought it was a fun night of entertainment at the theater. Yeah. Um, so the argument in the book is that, you know, or at least the argument as it pertains to drag and its relation to uh, queerness and queer culture is, yes, these connections were in the air, um, mm -hmm. again, from at least the 18th century, and they, you know, developed over time. But um, not everyone did connect drag to what we would call today queerness or queer culture. Yeah. And certainly not the audiences. I think that's the main thing we're saying here as well, isn't it? That the audience was were getting lots of things out of this, and um, yeah, censors were were kind of part of the part of this uh, the making of the of of those kinds of discourses that you're talking about. But audiences were getting lots of different things out of it. One of the really interesting things that um, I think one of the reasons that I was ambivalent about drag before reading a book was that I'm old enough to remember Danny LaRue. <laughs> who <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> is the subject of chapter three of your book and um i do remember him being really uh kind of on the tv all the time and uh just being completely nonplussed by him and um just feeling like it was all just very dull uh, <laughs> and he has some quite conservative things to say about him so about drag um and sexuality although it he later it, be, it became clear he he was gay and in a in a relationship with a man um mm -hmm. but he was applying it was kind of like a uh he had this kind of a conservative catholic upbringing didn't he which he i suppose brought with him into his show and it was almost as if it was a a different set of discourses to to those that we we're just talking about with splinters is that uh well, how does how does Daniel Rue sit in the history of uh, history of drag? Yeah, well, I mean, there's definitely some you know overlap between Daniel Rue and Splinters. I would say they both kind of, uh, for instance, um, projected glamour drag. Mm -hmm. uh, Daniel Rue was you know hyper glamorous, but uh, basically, if your audiences don't know uh, Daniel Rue, Daniel Rue was arguably the most popular entertainer in Britain period um, in the 1960s and 1970s. Um, yeah. He had his own club. He was ubiquitous on television. He had successful stage shows. Um, 
So he was like everywhere in the uh, 1960s and 70s in particular, which was his heyday. He died in 2009. Mm. Um, And I used Danny LaRue as an example of conservative drag. Mm. And I used, you know, the popular idea of the swinging 60s uh, and slash the so-called permissive society. Mm. Um, You know, it often emphasizes social liberalism for good reason um uh but um you know uh i'm using danny larue as a way to talk about conservatives uh in the 60s um or and you know not so much ideological conservatives but people who are hesitant uh to fully embrace uh social liberalism um Mm -hmm. in the 60s um and uh you know, the whole, like, uh, politically, the permissive society, so-called, again, um, encompasses, you know, people often refer to liberal legislation, such as the abolition of the death penalty, mm-hmm. the partial decriminalization of male homosexual acts, mm-hmm. um, the abolition of theater censorship, which right. the book talks about. Um, so things of that nature. Um and uh, so Danny LaRue, I think, was a cultural touchstone for people who not necessarily were overtly opposed to these changes, but they mm. were kind of hesitant to embrace this milieu. And um, Danny LaRue was very comforting. He uh, he was all about kind of light entertainment. He said, I don't I, I admire message theater, but I don't have any messages. So yeah. he was just pleasant and fluffy and all about glitz and glamour when you had uh you know these these uh so-called the kitchen sink drama with plays like look back in anger for mm-hmm. example um uh where and so compared to that Danny Larue didn't have uh political or social messages um he also uh stood in contrast to the live sexual entertainment that was proliferating uh around London and elsewhere um, even though he his club was actually a former strip club owned by Paul Raymond of Raymond's Review Bar fame, who your listeners might have heard of. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, he was a strip club impresario. Um, and uh, Danny LaRue also, in his act, you know, uh, said quite conservative things. For instance, uh, I talk about how he has sort of the stand-up routine where he goes after John Lennon and Yoko Ono, mm. um, who, who, in a sense, I guess, were like the Prince Harry uh, and Meghan of uh, their day, you know, <laughs> like a punching bag for grouchy conservative types. Um, and, so uh, you know, um, goes, uh, goes after miniskirts and things like that. Um, and in interviews, he says stuff like he bemoans the fact that Latin mass isn't as popular as it once was. Um, And, you know, I think in some ways he's, uh, there's clearly a self-consciousness about this. You know, he doesn't want to be associated with uh, homosexuality, for instance, but Mm. I do think he was genuinely conservative. Yeah. Um, And, um, uh, so, um, yeah, I kind of use him to talk about how, you know, there's a sense that drag, you know, drag has always been a protest, I think is a, a 
phrase that I bring up in the chapter, or drag is, you know, um, essentially a progressive art form. And I kind of say, well, drag is an art form like any other in a lot of ways, and it can have conservative um, strands, it can have underground strands, mainstream strands, avant-garde strands. Um, So, and Danny LaRue is a clear example of conservative drag um and uh as i said it as you said rather it later turned out that he was gay and had been in a relationship with his manager um but even once he came out he kind of didn't like to in fact there was one interview where he's asked he was asked if he goes to gay clubs this was later on in his career when he was Mm out i guess you could say and he said no i don't go to gay clubs they all have mustaches and i can't stand that (laughs) and um i'm referring to i guess like the so-called clone identity among gay men that was popular at the time and still is to some extent um so uh yeah he um so yeah i used him to talk about uh conservative drag and 1960s era uh cultural conservatism in general yeah and again it goes to make the point that um drag can be everything and can include all these different meanings and um and different um yeah different meanings um we're kind of we've kind of talked about this a little bit but perhaps um i'm conscious about time and i do want to talk about uh queerness uh because that i find that really fascinating so if we could just talk quickly about the role of the the censor here so what i would so during the in the period we're talking about, all am I right in saying that all new scripts performed in a theatre had to be run past the Lord Chamberlain's office? Is that correct? You're very close, which is very impressive. <laughs> <laughs> but um, basically, so between 1737 and 1968, right. um, the Lord Chamberlain's office, which still exists, um, they mostly do like like planning of state dinners and stuff, right. um, which is weird that they also had dominion over censoring place um but um they if you wanted to stage a a new play or a new or if you wanted to make new additions to an old play and you wanted to stage this for the public you had to get the script licensed by the lord chamberlain's office uh and they were britain's uh, state theater censor mm-hmm. um as I mentioned, they lost their power to uh, censor stage uh, plays in 1968. Mm. And I talk about the Lord Chamberlain's office not because they were representative of public opinion, because they weren't. A lot of the people in the office were uh, retired military officers. That was one of the criticisms of the Lord Chamberlain's office, that a lot of the people, including the Lord Chamberlain uh, or Lords Chamberlain themselves, um didn't have much experience in theater. For instance, uh, I believe the the last um, the last Lord Chamberlain to have power over theater censorship was Lord Cobald, and he was the former uh, head of the Bank of England. And uh, there's one one person who I quote in the book says uh he's a theater he was a theater critic and he said imagine if you know i after decades as a theater critic was brought in to you know govern the bank of england that's basically what it's like uh except the reverse with this guy um so um but uh, i do think they're important because they probably had the most direct control over drag performance of you know any institution 
um, uh, that I talk about. Um, and uh, also through looking at the Lord Chamberlain's office, you can also see what other people thought about drag. You can see, yeah. um, you know, because people, as you mentioned, wrote in letters to the Lord Chamberlain's office saying, I saw this show and I hated it and you should ban it yeah. or whatever. Um, and uh, the Lord Chamberlain uh, also, uh, they could not... If if a show was deemed to be going off the licensed script or was uh, deemed to be, um, you know, obscene, then uh, the um, or breaking theater censorship law in some way, then um, they couldn't bring the show to court themselves. They had to get the police involved and or the courts involved. Mm. Um and uh, often the courts and the police had different opinions about the show right. than the Lord Chamberlain's office. Sometimes they might be, for instance, um, uh, the Lord Chamberlain's office might think a show was quite bad and obscene. And then the police would go in saying, like, it was mostly fine, <laughs> whatever. Yeah. Um, so um, I'd also they were just noticing it's incredibly popular. So yes, exactly. and, and the, the view of somebody in... Uh, St. James's House, is it? In, St. James's in London, Palace, yeah. Is, is going to be very, very different to a theatre in Hull or Derby, where yes. I'm from, with packed out audiences. Yes, um, yes. And it's, th- and it's that difficulty of, um, that ambiguity about how we're supposed to police, uh, I suppose, obscenity, but also gender and sexuality in that way, um, and how different people saw it. It was a constant kind of... Um, a kind of battle, wasn't it? And so there were the Lord Chamberlain's office, although it was their role to, in quote unquote, censor um, these shows and to maintain the line of acceptability. It was always very fraught, wasn't it? Because they would always come into contact with actually existing people yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, who and were seeing the shows and being like, well, mate, I don't know what you're talking about. And sometimes um, the Lord Chamberlain's office would be quite uh, worried that these shows were so popular and right. they would sort of... Um, tut tut at the uh people who would watch this sort of you know uh in their view crappy <laughs> entertainment right. um so or lowbrow entertainment um but i i talk about how you know the lord chamberlain ultimately was pretty tolerant of mm. drag you know you have this idea of oh the theater censor they must be the biggest prude in the country you know yeah. and in some ways, like, and I quote uh, their correspondence and things like that, in a lot of ways, they were super prudish, like laughably prudish. Um, But, um, you know, one point I try to make in the the book is there was a, there's the reactions to drag exist on a spectrum. It wasn't just, you know, positive versus negative you know if somebody had a negative opinion of drag that existed on a spectrum you know some people might see a drag show this they disliked and said yeah this should be stamped out this should be illegal or whatever but you know the lord chamberlain even though they didn't like a whole lot of the drag shows that you know came uh on their desk um they uh you know overall tended to be begrudgingly tolerant you know yeah. this show is lowbrow but as long as it's not you know overt or as long as there's no quote-unquote pansy business um yeah. things of that nature then 
you know, it's fine. And there were some shows that, uh, you know, the Lord Chamberlain approved, and then they were seen to be going off script or being obscene. And so the Lord Chamberlain might have tried to take them to court over it. And, you know, yeah. um, but um, overall, the the attitude towards drag uh, from the Lord Chamberlain's office was one of kind of ambivalent slash begrudging tolerance. Yeah. Um, and so that's the kind of and and so I think you can uh, use that to make, you know, as I said, I don't think the Lord Chamberlain's office represented a cross section of Britain, but um, they were quite important in terms of the regulation, the day to day regulation of drag. And also they kind of uh, you can draw wider conclusions about, you know, wider societies, uh, the uh, the diverse attitudes towards drag in wider society from looking at the Lord Chamberlain's office. Yeah, I think it just reminded me of uh, of just how how power works around um, the regulation of sexualities and how um, I mean, even from. A uh, friend of the show, Dr. Ellen Yanaga, who talks about how, uh, you know, Aquinian, uh, Aquinian sexual morality, you know, that there's only a particular kinds of sex that were allowed. But then, of course, uh, individual uh, individual people going about their daily lives were constantly having lots of different horny kinds of sex and thinking about it and, and enjoying yeah. it. So there's a difference between how things are regulated and how things are actually commonly practiced. And I think it's mm. it's interesting. Right, that, that really kind of comes out in your book, too, in really interesting ways. How, how there's almost kind of like a, an upper ruling class version of an appropriate theatre show and appropriate sexualities and appropriate genders. And then just looking at the packed out theatres across uh, provinces of the of the UK where they are absolutely loving absolutely everything they're seeing, uh, which yeah. I thought was really interesting. And uh, the Lord Chamberlain also, it should be said, you know, and this is one of the reasons, not the reason, but one of the reasons why the Lord Chamberlain's office lost its power of theatre censorship is, mm-hmm. you know, it they didn't really please anyone. You had more... Uh, liberal and libertarian types thinking, or and even just, you know, kind of apolitical people just thinking that it was ridiculous how you, that you had this theater censorship system. Um, and the Lord Chamberlain, by the way, was a member of the royal household, which made right. it appear more anachronistic and still is a member of the royal household. Um, and, um, but you also had kind of these social conservatives who kept on yelling at the Lord Chamberlain's office, telling them, you know, they needed to be more censorship happy. And so the Lord Chamberlain's office would often poo-poo those people, um, as well as, you know, the more liberal types. So basically the Lord Chamberlain's office, first of all, you know, we it it, it would be over an oversimplification to just see them as massive conservative prudes, yeah. which they were in some ways, but not entirely. Um and also there were, you know, people who were much more conservative than the Lord Chamberlain's office, uh, who the Lord Chamberlain's office often, as I said, were dismissive towards. So um, they ended up pleasing no one. And that was part of the reason why uh, yeah. they lost their censorship powers. And all of the, those battles with courts and local police and and was yes. that was all just kind of, they were kind of the material things where everyone was just kind of thinking, well, this isn't even really doing what it's supposed to. It's all a bit of a waste of time now, I guess. Yes. And Rather yeah, I than mean, that being a sort of liberal um, kind of wave of, of kind of uh, liberal sentiment, kind of anti-censorship. It was mm-hmm. a combination of things. Yeah, yeah, right. I uh, 
not enough time to get into it, but yeah, I mean, yeah. Uh, people often say the death knell for the Lord Chamberlain's office was, you know, kind of the counterculture or the permissive yeah. society. And, you know, it, uh, it, that narrative is aided by the fact that, you know, one of the first plays to go on after the Lord Chamberlain's office lost its censorship power was Hair, with the yeah. famous nude scene, for example. Um, but, you know, a big part of it was just that the courts and the police weren't always willing to go along with what the Lord Chamberlain's office wanted. So in some ways, the death of the Lord Chamberlain's office, as far as censorship was concerned, was down to these kind of old institutions, not, you know, not necessarily yeah. the permissive zeitgeist. Yeah, yeah. And just finally, just in the in the epilogue of the book, um, and dear listener, this is such a great book. Please do buy the book. Uh, it's so, so good. You Thanks. do come back to the... Um, so it's titled is queer um sorry is how queer is drag because you you tell the story of all these different uh kinds of drag and where drag sits broadly and actually it's quite it's quite a mainstream part of uh, british cultural uh life for better or worse r- you know if you're a fan of daniel Leroux, uh, you know i'm sorry mm-hmm. if i criticize daniel Leroux too much <laughs> if you're a fan of daniel Leroux, dear listener um but Tell us about, I've forgotten the name of the group, but there was a group of, who, who were um, aligned to and part of the Gay Liberation Front. Um, I remember there's a story about them going down to the shop to buy the Sunday papers in their heels, still high on LSD. And I thought, <laughs> I, I kind of want to be friends with these people. Very uh, telling like, that you remember that and not the name of the group. <laughs> yeah, I was like, I could be friends with these people, I think. Well, there, um, was, there was a group within the GLF that specifically focused on uh, gender nonconforming people and... Yeah back then they would have called themselves transvestites now they might uh identify as uh, transgender um but um i'm specifically talking about because the book is about drag i'm specifically talking about there the the practitioners of radical drag yeah. within the glf um the gay liberation front and they um uh for instance led protests against the nationwide festival of light which was both an event and an organization of Mm. uh evangelical kind of led social conservatives um and so and the radical drag practitioners protested against them and they also drag for them was also kind of a lifestyle and they sort of said uh, this is a clean break from the female impersonation of the past. We practice radical drag to, you know, as a way of rethinking masculinity, rethinking sexuality. We go down to the shops um, uh, in, you know, distressed makeup, I think it was, yeah. and their frocks. And they, um, you know, lived in a commune in uh, Notting Hill. Um and um, I'm so I sort of talk about you know this cultural moment as when drag started to kind of overtly become the preserve of then you might say gay culture now we'd say queer culture, mm-hmm. um, and uh, you know of course as I said before drag was associated with what we would today call queer culture you know, in the 19th and 20th centuries and earlier. Um, But I think the kind of once gay lib came to the forefront, you have, you know, at least pure drag being overtly claimed as like a 
preserve of gay culture slash queer culture. Of course, you still have people like, you know, Dick Emery on TV, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, Kenny Everett, although Kenny Everett was gay, um, annotory. Um, but anyway, yeah. <laughs> um, um, you know, so you still, you still have drag being performed for um, straight audiences but it becomes more overtly claimed by uh, gay culture and queer culture and even sort of a political drag is still you know more overtly from the late 1960s early 1970s uh being overtly claimed by gay culture slash queer culture and so um uh so yeah that's uh the argument that i'm making and then you also have um you know, less pure forms of drag percolating through popular culture. So for instance, um glam rock, right? Uh, and yeah, like, yeah, yeah. uh gender variants expressed by um pop stars and things. So you have these like so you have kind of more pure drag becoming the preserve of gay culture. Um and but then you also have kind of drag adjacent types of presenting oneself and performance. Um in the mainstream and often um you know what's seen as the defining moment for that is uh in 1969 the rolling stones do a concert in hyde park a famous concert and um uh mick jagger wears what was called what has been called uh, a little girl's a little girl's party frock (laughs) um it was actually more like kind of an a Slavic kind of cassock, but people kind of thought it was a frock um, or people interpreted it as a frock. And so um, Mick Jagger has actually been compared to a drag mother because he's seen as inspiring uh, rock stars and pop stars to, um, you know, present themselves in terms of gender nonconformity. Uh, mm-hmm. I think often it's quite simplistic to kind of trace something back to one event, but, you know, uh, that's at least uh, Mick Jagger and Hyde Park at least helped popularize uh, yep. gender nonconformity among pop and rock stars. Um, so you have those two things happening. And that's where I think, you know, I'm not saying that that story isn't worth telling, but the reason why I end in 1970 is because I think it's arguable that pure drag doesn't, can't claim to be kind of a mass cultural form in the same mm. way it, uh, it had been pre-1970. Mm. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, I'm happy for people to engage and disagree with that <laughs> argument if they want to. <laughs> I suppose there might be uh, there might be a post-Vortist thing going on there as well, as that the, at that time that that becomes the proliferation of of uh, of uh, lots of different forms of work and lots of different forms of culture and mm-hmm. um, and. Uh, and the pr- proliferation of, I guess, different identities too. So maybe it's kind of part of the the history of twentieth century capitalism as well. Perhaps that's also part mm-hmm. of it. And te- of course, when you make the point in the in the book, um, people stop going to theatres so much when when more and more people buy TV. So and that was happening during the sixties and certainly uh, the seventies. And so there's different kind of entertainment on offer. And so drag was still doing a different thing, but still have drag today don't we i mean you reminded me that mrs brown's boys exist so thanks for that (laughs) yeah i mean uh well so you know you talked about how you found danny larue milk toast and kind of uninteresting and yeah i think you know 
uh, and this isn't to criticize other cultural historians, it's just an observation, but people are often, academics and people in general are often drawn to kinds of performance that they think are cool and interesting, right? <laughs> um, it's just natural. Um, but I do think that uh, we should also look at very popular uh, kinds of performance um, or very popular aspects of pop culture that uh, we don't necessarily find immediately engaging. Um, You know, I think if you maybe polled some academics, uh, a lot of them would not think much of Mrs. Brown's Boys. Um, But Mrs. Brown's Boys is one of the most popular TV shows and also theater shows. All of of my uh, family love it. Like, I just don't, they forced me to watch it. I'm like, just tell me when to laugh because I just, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I just don't get it. But yeah. So, you know. By the way, Mrs. Brown's boys, uh, his wife also plays his daughter similarly to Arthur Lucan. I think there's a lot of comparisons there. Right. Um, but um, uh, so, yeah, I think these things are the milk toast popular stuff that maybe we don't find immediately engaging as cultural historians or cultural scholars is still worth looking at. Um yeah. And, you know, I think there and there is a way to maybe make it interesting for oneself, um, as I did with Danny LaRue. I think there is I genuinely do get a kick out of watching a lot of Danny LaRue's performances. But I mean, the point of his act was that it was inoffensive and milk toast and just sort of pleasant (laughs) um, rather than something that would like really grab you, you know, Um, it was always uh, very beautiful, I have to say. You know, his outfits were extraordinary. Yeah. Like, yeah, absolutely totally. enormous as well, weren't they? You have, you have a picture in your book of this enormous frock that's held yeah. by several people. Yeah, yeah he um, had to get it like a like six stage hands to, because <laughs> like there, he had this ostrich feather frock with a very long train, and he had to get like several. You see, there's a photo in the book of several people kind of wrestling with this uh, right. ostrich feather train. Um, and it is a it is a very beautiful book, and the illustrations in are great. I just love everything about it, Jacob. I'm so thank you so much. I'm so pleased you you came on the show and that I got to read your book. It's a, such a privilege. So, thank drag you. Uh, a British history um, by Jacob Bluefield out now. Buy many copies, and most crucially. <laughs> read them or get your library to buy many copies. Uh, Jacob, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah. And as I said, you know, if you hate drag, read it. If you're ambivalent, read yeah. it. If you're, if you like it, so you can purchase it for friends and enemies. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, uh, the, you can target everyone. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much. Cheers. Thanks for having me.